Well, I believe it was a radical self-expression. I just called a friend one day and said, let's burn a man on the beach. Let's burn a man on the beach. Let's burn a man on the beach. Welcome to Burning Man According to Us. I'm Steve Robbins. And this is Evan Shulman over here. And today we're going to be talking about one of Burning Man's 10 principles. These are the principles the culture is based on called decommodification. Decommodification. Yes, it's a big one. And uh, we're recording this in the lovely end of year in December. Uh, I'm not sure when you all out there will be listening to it, but we thought it was fitting for usually what happens around the end of the year with uh, the exchange of things, the gifting of things, the uh, interesting <laughs> the giant orgy that. of commercialism. Oh, sorry, I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, no. Hey, you know, sometimes it has to be said. Sometimes it has to be said. Um, yeah. So, Stever. So, what what are your thoughts on decommodification? We were just kind of talking through a little bit before we hit the record button. Sure. Well, first of all, we probably want to define decommodification. Uh, this is one of the ten principles of Burning Man, and the official principle reads. In order to preserve the spirit of gifting, our community seeks to create social environments that are unmediated by commercial sponsorships, transactions, or advertising. We stand ready to protect our culture from such exploitation, and we resist the substitution of consumption for participatory experience. Oh, so good. So rich in that one. Oh, yeah. We, we have a lot that we can say about this. Yeah. Um, they even mention, you know, a couple of the other principles that we haven't gotten into yet, but we will uh, in order to preserve the spirit of gifting. Gifting is another principle we'll get into. Uh, and towards the end, they say we resist the sub- substitution of consumption for participatory experience, uh, and participation is another principle that we'll get into. So this one's this one's ripe with uh, intersectionality with other principles. Ooh, you used a word, intersectionality. <laughs> Love it. Um, that's a word. That's a new word. That's not a word that can be exchanged with any other word. <laughs> and that means that word is not a commodity. No. Um, before we talk about commoditization, we probably also want to want to investigate what a commodity is. You looked it up, so why don't you let us know? Yes, I like uh, being the nerdy person again uh, and looking things up. Uh, so from Investopedia. Uh, which is a finance-based uh, uh, website, of course. So this is a finance-biased uh, uh, viewpoint. Um, but commoditization refers to the process of making something into a commodity, and a commodity is a fundamental good used in commerce that is interchangeable with other commodities of the same type. Commoditization removes the individual unique characteristics and brand identity so that the product becomes interchangeable with other products of the same type. And so perhaps if you've been following along or if you have a sense about what Burning Man is about, at least according to us, uh, you can see why decommodification is so important and why it is one of the principles. In fact, I would go one step further with this definition. And this one talks about removing brand identity so that products become interchangeable with other products of the same type. And that's certainly true in terms of global commodities, something that is a commodity around the world. But I would suggest that even within one particular brand, for example, um, one of the things that you see on the playa, unfortunately, is people bring U-Hauls to carry Mm -hmm. their stuff in Mm -hmm. sometimes. Or to sleep in and live in. Yes. 
And people who are understanding of the principle of decommoditization, they will cover up the U-Haul logo on the side, or they might take pieces of paper and tape it over and make it into some other art or make it into something fun or funny looking as opposed to just saying U-Haul. Because when you have a dozen trucks that all say U-Haul, that is a decommodification, that is, that's a commoditization right there. It's just a commoditization within a single brand, the brand U-Haul, mm-hmm. right? The implication being any U-Haul truck is just like any other U-Haul truck. And of course, the fundamental principle of Burning Man is we're bringing together a unique group of 70,000 people who are all doing unique things. And wow, if you're interchangeable with, or if your truck is interchangeable with something else there, then one of you is redundant and it's probably you. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that's, and again, you know, as we kind of talk about decommodification, for me, again, this is this past year was my first time going. That was one of the magical things is that uh, seeing that people had either attempted to cover up the logos in, in respect of this principle and or like hack it and like kind of make new art out of it or, you know, um, to some of the prankster roots of Burning Man, you know, kind of uh, uh, do some wordplay with the different words on the logo. Um, and it's just really refreshing to see art or, uh, or, or no advertising. Um, and those are not, uh, uh, mutually exclusive. Um, but, but just going to the playa and seeing that as compared to just seeing a brand and a logo all over the place all the time. So why do you think it's there? Why is decommoditization, I'm not sure I'm ever going to be able to pronounce this, decommoditization, decommodification, yes. You know what, I'm going to pronounce decommoditization in my own unique way as opposed to using the commodity way of pronouncing it. Perfect. Um, uh, Why do you think, why is it there? Yeah, so so for me, again, kind of, you know, seeing the principles as this kind of cultural DNA uh, for Burning Man and for uh, this culture and this, you know, kind of emergent group or, or society, it's it's really in the last two sentences. So for the principle, uh, the last two sentences are, we stand ready to protect our culture from such exploitation. Uh, and that is basically explicitly stating a desire uh, and explicitly stating that, hey, we're going to defend this, which in itself helps defend against intrusion by commercial interests instead of it was some unwritten rule. And then people said, well, you know, no one's really calling this out, so it's probably okay. No, by making this explicit and saying, hey, we're ready to defend against this, it in itself is defending against that commercial interest. Um, and it also is actively resisting uh, consumption or paying for something um, instead of directly participating. So that, that last sentence of the principle, we resist the substitution of consumption for participatory experience. It's, again, making things explicit and, uh, again, calling back to another principle, which is participation, and saying, like, hey, this shouldn't be about paying for things to happen. You can do that elsewhere in everyday life. Uh, but when you're here, at least, or when you're part of this community, um, think about ways that you can in- encourage and increase a participatory experience and a sense of social bonding compared to just paying for something and moving on. Absolutely. The exploitation thing is interesting because if you take a look at the at the non-Burning Man world, there seems to be that products and services and things go through phases. And in one phase, you have like some cool thing that happens, a new dance move that gets developed, or somebody wears some cool style. And then and to some, for some period of time, people may copy that. They may use it as a basis for what they're doing. And then some large company decides, hey, <laughs> we see that thing. We want to make money on that thing. And they, they often will sanitize it if it is something that was edgy or that had 
had some sort of overtones maybe of rebellion or of of you know whatever your your favorite sanitization dimension is uh well they will of course you know tune it down to be appealing to the masses yep. and then mass produce them and boom everyone has the thing in fact i was reading an article very recently about i don't remember what it was called it was about a woman came up with some really amazingly cool type of bikini and she has made millions and millions of dollars in the last couple of years selling these, and they're now in Neiman Marcus and all of these different stores. And it turns out that, and she's been suing everyone who's doing anything that even remotely resembles a knockoff. She's been suing them for theft of her intellectual property. Well, it turns out that she stole the design lock, stock, and barrel when she was on a visit, I, I think it was to a third world country, or I don't remember exactly where it was, but it was it was someplace where, you know, no money is a lot of money, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And she literally, they had pictures in this of, you know, here's here's the, the a sample of the bikini that this woman in Brazil makes. Here's the sample of the bikini that this woman markets through Neiman Marcus. <laughs> and, you know, they were identical. And what was so interesting was it was just really, really clear how much exploitation was going on here about this woman exploiting, about the woman who was the marketer exploiting the woman whose product she had stolen, and then about how all of these companies had taken this, uh, taken this design, and they were exploiting the thing that the marketer woman had had brought to market, and basically it was a lot of people just copying each other, <laughs> and and you know, and the one woman, the part that it's the part they didn't dwell on. This whole thing was about, hey, this woman who was a marketer and is suing everyone else turns out to be a fake herself. That was the point of the story. Mm-hmm. One throwaway sentence in the story pointed out that Neiman Marcus, feeling you know feeling bad about this and wanting to do the right thing, went to the woman in Brazil, and they're paying her $7,000 a year for the rights to use her designs. And I'm reading that, and I'm going, really? Really? $7,000 a year? <laughs> this woman has created a an eight-figure product line for them that they have simply copied lock, stock, and barrel? And they are magnanimously paying her seven thousand dollars a year, and it was it was appalling. Yeah. And to me, that was one of those things. And I'm not speaking economically here, right? The the theory behind all economics is well, if two people willingly enter into a transaction, then of course everything's okay. Um, and you know, we can debate upon upon information asymmetry and about what what willing means and all that stuff, but. Even if that is a completely legitimate economic transaction because the woman in Brazil had no clue what her property was worth mm-hmm. and or no ability to negotiate, I'm guessing it was no clue. Um, either way, I look at the situation, I just think it's horrible. I think that this is exploitation at its finest. And, and even if the woman is fine with that, to me as a member of a community in which this is happening, I look at this, and even though it's not happening directly to me, I say, wow. I can't trust Neiman Marcus. I can't trust them to do the right thing. I can't trust them to morally help make sure that people share in the creation, Mm. share in the value that they have helped to create. Mm. And I think when you have a community like Burning Man, where you explicitly say, okay, guess what? There isn't going to be commoditization. I'm going to write this down and tape it to my screen so I can just look at it every time I need to say it. <laughs> if there isn't going to be commodification, then that particular dynamic really goes away. There's a story I've heard about one year a some soft drink company or something wanted to sponsor, wanted to to donate a bunch of their product to Burning Man because it's in the desert. And they're like, ooh, we're going to get people drinking our drink and they'll know who we are. And they said, sure, you can do that, but you have to remove all the labels. 
Now, the way the company got around this is they had some flavor that no other company had. So they donated just that flavor. They didn't have any brand name on it. But of course, if the flavor was was guava honeybee, anyone going back to civilization and looking for guava honeybee was going to discover it was only made by one company. So it would have been an effective, well, presumably, if if it had had that effect, it would have been an effective way to be decommodified at the event, and yet at the same time spread their their brand right, and product. Spread their, Right, um, but but really, the the exploitation piece to me is super important because when we see exploitation, or I'll speak for myself, when I see people start to exploit something, be it the fashion, be it the artwork, it generally degrades the quality, and it generally, it generally, I don't know how to put it. It it, it changes it the experience makes, because it becomes, I think, about. The transaction, or this, or this search for uh, money or value in exchange for, uh, you know, it, it's 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 the exchange and the transaction. At least if, if I'm interpreting you correctly, and kind of the the you know discussion we've had leading up to this this episode, you know, it becomes about making money instead of becoming about creating a cool piece of art or about creating clothes that work and look good on people. Mm-hmm. It's like it changes the point, and. And I think that money should be a mechanism that is used to help facilitate people doing awesome stuff, right? Not people doing awesome stuff being simply a means to someone making a lot of money. That, if that makes is, any sense. It makes a lot of sense, uh, at least to me. And I think you've hit on a lot of a lot of great points because um, I think I think that is it. And, you know, that even touches on something that we've talked about, Steve, around. Uh, uh, hey, you know, in order to put on Burning Man, you do need money and you do need to, I mean, I guess some people can come and they don't have had to exchange anything in, in quote unquote default world uh, in order to come. But for the most part, you got to figure out a way to bring water and food and shelter and transportation and all those things do cost money. So to your point, it's like, how do you use money to facilitate this artistic participatory experience and not the other way around? And if we start Allowing that exploitation and that um, that other way aroundedness to enter, then it changes the point, and that changes the thing uh, in and of itself because of its its very nature. It even changes how people behave because if the point becomes about making money, well, now you're not going to do the art that you think won't make money, and you right. are going to do the art that you think will make money. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that in the default world. If right, I mean, that's the default world works on money, and. Again, we can debate whether it should or not, but we're talking about Burning Man. At Burning Man, we don't want people's decisions about what to do while they're there to be driven by their brand sponsorships. Right. We or, want it to be driven you know, by, like we've talked about in the past, uh, this is the coolest thing I could think to bring, or this is the most helpful thing I could think to bring. And that is what is brought and shared. And so when you go, you are just surrounded by what started in someone's head as this would be cool or this would be helpful, not this would help me make money or this would help me uh, uh, in the long run in the default world. Did I tell you about the fishing net? You did not tell me about the fishing net. All right. My first Burning Man, the first night that I was there, I went out onto the playa after sundown and I discovered holy cow, everyone out on the playa is brightly lit. They're wearing all kinds of sparkly things. There are these cars riding around that have huge light show displays on them, and the city itself is all lit up. All I have is my little bitty headlamp, which makes me a single dot of brightness in this whole 
mess. And by the way, it's the desert. It's pitch dark if you're not looking directly at a light. Yeah. So it took me about 30 seconds to realize I'm going to get killed if I don't put more lights on. One headlamp is not enough. Mm. I went back to my tent. I did not have more lights except, uh, and I didn't have any like clothes that had lights infused or stitched into them. I didn't have any of that kind of mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. But what I did have was I had packed some of my possessions in a fishing net. And I'm like, huh, I have a fishing net. And my bicycle, I had lights on the bicycle, which I had wrapped around the, the not the spokes, the whatever, the, the frame of the bicycle. I, had, yep. I, I knew that I had to, to have lights on that. And I looked at that, and so I took the lights off my bicycle, and I just wove them into the fishing net. And I don't mean that I wove them in any grand, I just, you know, looped them in and out of the, out of the net around the net and then i took the net took a carabiner because i love carabiners clipped the ends of the net together so it now made a loop that was that had these lights woven through it and i just slipped it over my head uh, over my body as a sash so it went from my shoulder down to my waist and to me i'm like holy cow i just threw this thing together out of the junk i had in my tent so that i wouldn't get killed (laughs) i got more compliments on that than anything else I did, which you know might just be a statement about how miserable I am as an artist. <laughs> but, but what people said over and over, they said, "Oh my gosh, that's amazing!" You know, where did you get it? Mm. And I realized part. I realized the value in that was that I was showing up with something no one else had done, and I was doing it. And the reason it was happening was I had made it myself, and I made it myself because I needed it. And, and good. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, and that touches on um, almost like another principle that we'll, we'll get to about uh, you know radical self-reliance and necessity as the mother of invention. And time after time on the playa, you might be faced with a situation where you have to do something to help yourself out or help someone out, and you have to f- kind of MacGyver it together based on the things that you have around you. Um, and some people might say, oh, that's a lot of work. And some people say, no, that's an opportunity to be creative and come up with something new. Um, and you know, now, now you just left an impression on the other people that you were walking around. Uh, and that was out of, you know, uh, fending for yourself in a sense and, and using what you had instead of, um, something ready-made necessarily. And something you just said there, I thought was fairly deep where people think, oh, that's a lot of work. And the thing about Burning Man is that's what Burning Man is. Yes, exactly. It's (laughs) not that it's a lot of work. It's that, it's that. It's that what Burning Man as an experience is, right? It's not being entertained by other people. It's, oh, I have this interesting challenge. I want to go out at night. I need to be lit. Let me make that happen. Yes. And the experience of Burning Man is the let me make my world happen piece, not the I want to go out and look at artwork. I mean, obviously, that is a part of the experience. But to me, the thing that makes it so unusual and so different from daily life is how pure it's the I'm going to go make my experience happen. And decommodification, if you're a commodity, you're not making your experience happen. You're making someone else's. Um, I, I met somebody there who, very wealthy person, and I was talking, and every time I saw this person, they were wearing like a different amazing costume. And I was talking to someone at their camp, and I said, wow, like that person has these amazing, amazing costumes. It must have taken them forever to put it together. And the camp member said, oh, no, no, they just paid a couple of people to go out and buy a dozen a dozen things and they just get them all out for that person at the right times, you know, every day. And they just, and that person just changes into them. And I just remember thinking, Oh, okay. You know, it, it basically 
they're not the, the person wearing them was serving almost no function at all. The Burning Man was not better because that person was here. Mm. Burning Man was better because that person's shoppers were there. Mm. Burning Man was better because of basically everyone except that person. That person themselves, by 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 commoditizing their clothing and commoditizing what they were doing, they were paradoxically commoditizing themselves as well. Because if you're just showing up with some off-the-rack set of stuff that you bought and off-the-rack this and off-the-rack that, where's the you in it? You're not mm. bringing yourself to Burning Man. You're bringing someone else's idea of what a Burning Man costume should be. You're bringing someone else's idea. Anyway, yeah. well, I feel that, strongly about this. Yeah, <laughs> no, and that, that plugs into, uh, use the word plug there, uh, into the plug-and-play conversation, um, which is going on, I guess, in the community around, is it okay for people to basically pay to have their camp set up for them, and then they just show up and uh, are able to use the camp? And there was a recent survey that the Burning Man uh, nonprofit organization sent out, I think back in October, kind of asking the community for feedback on this and among other things. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it, I think it poses, you know, these types of interesting questions about, yeah, where's the you in, in what you're bringing and what is okay to quote unquote pay for pre playa um, on the playa. You can actually uh, uh, buy ice and coffee and that's about it. Um, and then we were looking into some of the history uh, behind decommodification. And actually in the 90s, uh, you, you, they had a merch table and people were able to buy Burning Man merchandise, right? So as we kind of talk about these principles and how things are uh, you know, evolving and the organization is evolving, um, these things do change over time. But I think, Steber, the conversation we're having is really about, okay, decommodification is a principle, but what is it really pointing at? What is it really getting at? And it seems to be that you know, Burning Man is about being you, whoever you may be, um, getting to know you, which would be getting to know yourself, and then figuring out A, how to express yourself, B, how to um, uh, make it as you in the world, engaging with other people. And again, part of the decommodification principle, it's talking about disintermediating, right? So kind of getting getting things out of the way that that get in the way between just two people conversing or sharing an experience or you know, you name and getting to that kind of real, real human aspect of, of life as compared to the generally commercialized um, experiences that we share in, in, again, the quote unquote default world. Um, I was talking with somebody about Burning Man because I always talk to people, people about Burning Man. And I was trying to explain to them if in a world where everything is commodified, which means that you use money for everything. If you want, if I am cooking dinner and you want to join me at dinner, then you can come up with money and say, here is the money that is the price of dinner, and you get to join. In a decommodified environment, if I'm gifting dinner to some number of people who I've just decided to gift to, and you come up and you say, I want some of your dinner because you're gifting people dinner, I am under no obligation to gift you dinner. You now have to figure out how to make me want to give you dinner. In other words, you have to be a nice enough person that I want to have you around, etc. And And I think that I can't really understate that point, or I can't overstate that point enough. Wait, what's the right word? You know what? <laughs> That's an important point. Um, because money, the power of money, is it allows a huge number of people to engage in economic 
endeavors on a scale that just couldn't ever be possible without money. I mean, money is a is a phenomenal invention, and it has enabled human civilization. Money also enables people to be jerks, <laughs> because as long as they have the money, they can get the thing they want, mm-hmm. and they can be as antisocial and destructive in every other way as they want to be. Whereas in an so environment- So long as, I will, I will add a caveat, so long as, because I think this is an important point, the people who would be receiving the money happily receive it, right? Because money does go a long way, and people with a lot of money do have a lot of uh, potential to spend that money in certain ways. But, um, and this is something I feel strongly about, you know, in a democracy, uh, <laughs> almost going super tangent here, but, but the idea that at the end of the day, it's still about people, and we shouldn't forget that. I think when, when money is how the world operates and how the world works, um, it, can, it can easily be seen as the thing that makes things move when it's really people that make things move, if that makes sense. But sorry if I took you off yes. track. Have you read the book, What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets? I have it's not. By, it's by Harvard Law professor Michael Sandel, who's most probably most widely known for he did a series on justice. Uh, what is right, how to tell what is right. And it's it's unbelievable. It was available for free. There may be a charge for it now in iTunes University and YouTube, but it was his, it was his series of lectures on justice and what justice means. Uh, and it's it's fabulous too, because by the end of the first two lectures, you've already covered every single philosophical argument you've ever heard anyone spew on the internet about things like libertarianism or communism or socialism or capitalism. Like mm-hmm. he, he basically knocks those off in, in the first two lectures and the rest of it is all new material. And what's so interesting is there have actually been people that have thought extremely deeply about these things for very, very long times, for centuries. And they've really thought through a lot of things. His latest book, What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets, he observes that more and more things that used to be either free or denominated in non-monetary currency. So, for example, it used to be that if you were a poor person and you wanted to go see a show, you could wait in line and get tickets for the show. Even if you didn't have a lot of extra money, as long as you could afford the ticket, you could go see the show. Then there came a rise of of things where you have to pay for the privilege of standing in line to get the ticket. Or you pay some, or you know, a rich person can pay someone else to stand in line for them if tickets are transferable. So, and in fact, you you can't really do that, or, or well, you can do that. That's a complicated thing. We'll not talk about that. Um, <laughs> but but basically, the idea is, it used to be that the currency of having free time and being willing to spend that time standing in line was a currency that gave you an advantage in getting tickets over someone who only had money. Mm-hmm. But now, in many instances. Money can be used to pay someone else to stand in line for you, so a rich person can, in fact, get the advantages of having both lots of money and lots of time, even if they personally don't have the lots of time. And the people who don't have the money lose out, even if they're willing to spend their other currencies. Mm. Um, and I'm doing a, I'm really butchering his argument, but I would say it's a it's a book worth reading. What money can't buy: the moral limits of markets by Michael Sandel, and it speaks to exactly what you're talking about that. That um, that commodification can get in the way, and it can, um, you know, it it makes things into a transaction. Right. And the problem with transactions, as I happen to know, because I'm one of these bizarre people who reads about psychology and neurology research, if you do something as part of a transaction, 
then you feel no particular bond with the person you've done the transaction with. No emotional bond or whatever. It's just, okay, you know, we, we had this transaction. I wanted a bubble gum and you were selling pieces of bubble gum for 10 cents. And so I gave you 10 cents and voila, we've now done the transaction. We go our separate ways. Again, the advantage is that that lets us engage in transactions with people we've never met before. And money is kind of the mechanism of trust here. And, and it enables exchanges to take place with people who we don't have any sort of bond with. But the downside is that not, that that it also doesn't make community. It doesn't bond people. If I have a transaction with you, that doesn't produce any bond between us. It's just a transaction, then we go our separate ways. That's why the word transactional means something that has no lasting effect except for the thing, for the exchange that happened. And when you decommodify the way that's done at Burning Man, then you don't have transactions in that sense. So you have to come up with other things to have instead, like I need to be a nice person so that you want to have dinner with me. And and those things generally are things that form social bonds. Um, there, you, had, you had found a, Larry, a quote about about that, actually, I was going to say, um, yeah. So, yeah. so uh, again, for those listening, um, highly recommend checking out journal.burningman.org. That's kind of where a bunch of uh, people have been part of Burning Man and the community and the network. Uh, you know, post various thoughts uh, over the years. So, we like to kind of review that to get fodder for the shows. And, and as we were preparing for decommodification, uh, there was an article, uh, August 11, twenty eighteen, by Rusty Blazenhoff. Before decommodification, there was once a merch table in Center Camp. Uh, and that's where we were talking a little bit about the story of uh, he wanted to bring postcards and send postcards from Burning Man in the 90s. That was really, really expensive. And so he thought, oh, you know, it'd be great. You know, I wanted to do this. I thought it'd be funny and fun, um, but it actually cost me a lot. So I'd like to kind of recoup my losses. Plus, there's a merch table. So I know people sell things. Um, and you, know, you can read the whole article yourself. But yeah, as we were kind of reviewing this, uh, Steve, you came across uh, a part of Rusty's article that talks about what Larry Harvey once said. And again, Larry Harvey is, uh, you know, one of the founders or co-founders of Burning Man. Um, so yeah, you want to read that one? Burning Man is like a big family picnic. Would you sell things to one another at a family picnic? No, you'd share things. And uh, and so th- that was the, Harvey, the Larry Harvey quote. And the author of the article goes on to say he's right. And in retrospect, I should have taken the opportunity to build deeper, more authentic relationships by giving my postcards away. Selling my postcards was about me and my needs. If I had gifted them, it would have been about the recipient, i.e., a true gift. And when it comes, yeah, when it, we'll talk more about this too when we do our episode on gifting. But when it comes to the kind of community that's built at Burning Man, it's a community where what we value most is the social and community connections, not, oh, look, you gave me 10 cents for my postcard. Yay, now I'm 10 cents richer. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and also kind of tying back in terms of you know the buying and selling things. You know, when we were talking earlier about uh, the story about the was it a bikini designer or uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that just made me think about. And you were talking about how you know, oftentimes in the commodified, uh, corporatized world, things will get sanitized because it kind of rides this adoption trend wave. Um, there's another article uh, I haven't read it yet, but as I was kind of you know doing some skimming to see what we could read. Uh, again, this is journal.burningman.org, um, written last year, January 2017, by Caveat Magister. 
Uh, decommodification and cultural appropriation, two great conversations that go great together. So again, I haven't read that, but that, that story was making me think of, yeah, cultural appropriation. Are we, are we really respecting the people? Are we seeing them as family members? Are we seeing them as people we want to bond with? And in respecting someone, I am uh, usually being nice to them. Um, are we are we trying to build that type of world, or are we trying to build a world where it's like, oh, you have something I like and that I can use for myself, either to make money or become celebrity or whatever it is? Um, and so I think that fits into this conversation as well. And also the uh, sanitization aspect. Um, yeah, something changes when uh, you know. Let's say that that postcard idea took off, and then all of a sudden, you know, a huge corporation wanted to do a big postcard postcard campaign in exchange for money. That would have fundamentally changed the nature of why this person wanted to do it because they thought it was interesting to send a postcard from Burning Man. Um, and it reminds me of, I think it was one or two Super Bowls ago or something. I was trying to look it up real quick while we were talking. Um, but Pepsi had an ad trying to uh, leverage the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, they had made this big ad about it and uh, got a lot of backlash because presumably they sanitized it or I'm reading things that say, you know, it was uh, called tone deaf. Um, so, you know, people looking to make money, but riding, you know, various social movements or trends or stylistic choices, whatever it may be, fundamentally changes the nature of why that choice was made and, and why these movements are happening. Um, yeah, well, right. It's it's a the movement is not about making money. The movement is about social justice, mm -hmm. and to turn it into an advertising slogan is hijacking what what some, including me, would call a higher purpose, that of social justice, for a baser purpose, that of commerce. And the thing about commerce. Again, it's it's that commerce should be a means for us to be able to create a world in which there is justice. It's not that justice should be a means for us to do commerce. And mm -hmm. I think that's where I mean, and it's a it's a hard balance because there may be maybe Pepsi genuinely just deeply supports Black Lives Matter, and the whole reason they wanted to do that ad was to support the movement. In which case, they probably should have given any money that they got as a result of that ad to the Black Lives Matter movement, but. But it's a it's again a confusion of of means and ends, and I and although money is necessary to get things done by making money the the purpose of the social movements as opposed to the facilitator of the social movements, I think it cheapens the social movements and um, you know and also I don't know how much money it makes yeah. <laughs> frankly yeah um, but you know something something else. Two that we haven't really talked about because at Burning Man, one of the pieces of decommodification, see, I'm pronouncing it now. <laughs> one of the purposes of decommodification is, or one of the aspects is getting rid of brand names. So someone gave me some lip balm while I was there, and it was might have been chapstick. I don't know because they had taken the labels off. In fact, I'm holding it in my hands right now. Oh, you still have it? And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, good stuff. <clears throat> and um, of course, at the, in the desert, you use it because it's dry and hot. And right now it's dry and cold. <laughs> but, but there is something that is just so nice. You don't realize how many brand names you are assaulted with every instant of every second, even in your home. Yeah. You really can't get away from them um, until you're suddenly in a place where there aren't any. And, and I think part of the reason that it's so relaxing to have them not be around and so freeing is that brand names mean something. That's the point of them. And 
And a lot of times when people use certain brands, part of using a brand is actually an identity statement. Mm-hmm. I'm the kind of, you know, I'm the kind of person who drives a Prius. And when I talk about a Prius, the Prius is part of my identity statement. Yes. Or I drive a Ford or I wear such and such designer clothes or I never wear designer clothes. Like, like, like we, a lot of times the brands that we have created and a brand is a, just a, collection of associations you know and of and of meanings right you know coke it's the real thing whatever that means we don't know but it means something to us because there are people out there who gosh darn it they're coke drinkers period um and when you suddenly and when you when you're surrounded by those your brain on some level is always thinking about those mm-hmm. and and how they relate to you and are the clothes that i'm wearing giving the impression that i want is the collection of brands that i've surrounded myself with are they sending the right signals and when you suddenly have no commodification anywhere, number one, you get to choose your identity based on how you act, how you show up, who you are, etc. And B, you don't con- you're not constantly being distracted by all of these brands that are trying to say, "Hey, let me be part of your identity." Hey, I'm this brand, and, and I know that. I mean, you know, it sounds like I'm being dramatic there, but how many people listening to this buy laundry detergent and think about Tide, for example, which is like I think the most famous brand. Like there's probably lots and lots of people who either specifically do buy Tide or don't buy Tide, and you know none of us have ever done the test to find out if it washes things any better. But weirdly, you know that's that that has a cluster of associations of like oh it works or you know whatever. Um, and when we're in a place that we need to wash clothes, we might mentally compare: gee, am I using Tide or am I using something else? Is this going to work as well? Oh, you have this weird third brand non-name brand thing. And all of those computations and all of those associations and all of those connotations are simply gone at Burning Man. And instead, it's about here's you know here's here's this tube of lip balm. Maybe it'll work for you, and maybe it won't. <laughs> you know, yeah. and give it a shot. It's find just out. so nice to. That was one of the things you know. Again, for my first time this year, um, it was just so nice to not see a billboard or an ad or a brand name. I mean, yes, some people didn't cover up their their uh, you know truck brand names. Um, but for the most part, you're in a city and there's nothing being advertised to you. The only thing, maybe people are calling out from their camps to say, hey, come have a drink. And that might be, you know, conveyed or interpreted by some as, oh, well, that's marketing. They're marketing, you know, what they have to offer at their camp. Um, but it's it's different because you're not, you're you're inundated by, you know, sensory sensations of lights and sounds and people calling you over. But it's different to walk in a city and not have anything any art piece that's really trying to sell you something or convince you that you're lacking something, uh, that you can only have it fulfilled by buying something. And, you know, I was reflecting on this that, you know, I feel like people really only get that when you leave a city and you maybe go to nature after you've been passing by a bunch of billboards on the road to said nature. But, but Black Rock City is living in a city without these commercial billboards, uh, and and all the art is used for art's sake, or to express oneself, or to get someone to think in a new way, instead of how advertising usually uses art, which is to to sell something. Um, and it's just a, it's just a, it like puts a rest on your brain or something. I don't know. It felt it's just a different experience. Yeah, it it is it is interesting. Because you, it's one of those things that you're not really aware of when you're immersed in it. 
Right. You know, it's like, oh, it's just this is how the world is. Yeah. And it's not until you're someplace where it's where it's not how the world is that you're like, wow, ancient people must have lived in environments where they didn't have like billboards everywhere <laughs> yeah. because they didn't have the technology to make billboards. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, like, wow. Only when you walk into the marketplace to buy something are people hawking and saying, hey, come buy these or come buy that. But the rest of the time, you're just kind of living your life and building things and having your family. You know, something else that I find kind of kind of funny when we talk about commodification is the commodification of us. Yes. And something I've struggled with in certainly in American culture is when someone says when you meet someone, the question you ask is, what do you do? And what you mean is how do you make money? Yes. And and I know that other cultures are not necessarily like that. That may just be a uniquely American thing. But it's also a very much a commodification thing. What it's saying is what's important about you is how you make money. There's a limited number of jobs and job titles and job descriptions. And once I know which box to put you in, I can kind of mentally categorize you the same as anyone else who fits in that same box. Mm-hmm. And at Burning Man, part at least part of my experience of decommodification is you don't ask people, what do you do? I don't think I've ever asked anyone at Burning Man, what do I do? Not not initially. I mean, maybe after we've been talking for a couple of hours, I'll say, what do you do anyway? Like, you're an interesting person. Where do I find people like you? And you know, then people say, oh, yeah, I'm an investment banker. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke, by the way. By, by, I've never actually met an investment banker at Burning Man. Who, uh, <laughs> I had a two-hour conversation with and found to be fascinating and interesting. But I'm open. I am open to the possibility. Yeah. Um, any investment bankers out there doing socially responsible investing and understand that it's about more than just profit and using money for advancing justice or or other issues. Um, yeah, no, and and to your point about uh, you know the commoditization of us, we we chatted a little bit about uh, I guess not only from a, what do you do as in how much do you make or what or how do you make your money, but also as we enter this digital attention based economy um, and our data is being commoditized to be sold and bought by people looking to sell us stuff in a virtuous cycle. Um, and you know, again, going back to that definition from Investopedia, right? Uh, commoditization removes the individual unique characteristics and brand identity so that the product becomes interchangeable with other products of the team, same type. When I read that, I immediately thought about how so much of our internet and, and digital-based economy is uh, basically quantifying us as people based on our search terms, based on uh, our behaviors and trying to make it so that we are a uh, you know row in a spreadsheet that can be sold to someone else. Yes, maybe to those working in the advertising industry. I used to work for DoubleClick. Um, yes, maybe without personally identifiable information, but still quantifying us and still selling us almost as interchangeable as anyone else who's maybe uh, just about to move and so is looking for furniture. And there's an argument to be made around, well, but then you get interest-based targeting and, well, now you're only seeing advertisements for things that you actually want, so it actually makes things more efficient and more reliable. But the fact still remains that our humanity and our individuality, our unique characteristics, is getting digitized and uh, uh, made normal, normalized, I guess, um, to become a commodity, to be bought and sold, which then fuels uh, this whole process. And Steve, I know you have a lot of thoughts on that in terms of you know internet privacy and um, our, our digital economy and things like that. Uh, so I don't know if you want to weigh in on that, but that's just another piece that we've been talking about. You know what? Um, I would say I'm looking at the time, and I think we have to wrap up. But I think that's something we should put a pin in 
<laughs> because it, the issue is not going away anytime soon. Speaking of attention-based economies, you'll have to hear us on episode two about decommodification so that we exactly. can keep your attention going on this topic, <laughs> which is so important. And just remember, in order for you to be a worthwhile human being, you have to buy in to episode two. So stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, don't miss out. Otherwise, uh, you're, you uh, will be missing the whole point of what it is to listen to podcasts about Burning Man. Because again, this is just Burning Man according to us. So, Exactly. Thank you for joining us, everyone. Thank you, Evan. Um, and uh, we will see you on our, or hear you, or actually you'll hear us on our next episode. And if not, no worries, because you live your life. Live your best life, listeners. Don't even worry about it. Exactly. But do run into us at Burning Man because yeah. we love meeting new people. <laughs> <All> <laughs> Bye, right. everyone. Bye.